0: side. Meet me on the softer side.
1: Softer side of your heart. Hi there and welcome to the Skylight Books Author Reading Series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online.
2: Tonight we have with us Benjamin Bush. He grew up in rural New York and currently lives on a farm in Michigan with his family. He's an actor and a director who many of us, including myself, would recognize as, quote, the angry cop from The Wire. Uh, He's a marine. He served two tours in Iraq uh, shortly after he returned and his daughter turned one. Both of his parents died and that set of circumstances, becoming a father and an orphan, influenced this current book greatly. He revisits his child and examines the way that our environment, literally the stuff around us, has an impact on how we exist, how we grow up, how we experience new places, how conflict unfolds. His writing has appeared in Harper's and has been nominated twice for a Pushcart Prize. Uh, He's somewhat into his tour. He'll be visiting, he's told me, 197 cities. So uh, we're certainly glad that LA is one of those. Uh, So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Benjamin Bush.
3: Uh, I always get excited when I see mics. There's something about the 80s that comes back. What you don't know is that uh, just mere weeks before this whole thing began, I was about to go on Fox News and I had 19 inches of hair in the back, which was fantastic (laughs) and made me, you know, very powerful. And uh, I knew that with great great hair came great responsibility. I didn't want to be responsible for the things that could have occurred had people seen this in public, had the fans been on. So I had a cut off and ever since then I've been a little frail so if my voice gets light, you know, just please excuse that. <clears throat> uh, thank you all for coming. Um, this, is a, uh, this is a book that goes after some big game. Um, of course, right here. They got that cover first, and they went with dirt. I just went with dust. Um, you know, it's 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 hard to move a thoughtful book in America right now, and I did a lot of thinking uh, to put this thing together. I went through an awful lot of uh, of personal um, territory, my own past, and my own landscape. It's really written from my landscape. Um, the dust to dust really is, uh, you know, we rise from dust, we return to dust. But in that middle space, that two, we're something magical. We're something much more than these components we seem to be built from. And that's what I'm trying to get at in this book is really, if I can, if I can place you enough in my head to get my vision of, of everything... Chapter by chapter, each has a different theme, water, metal, stone. Um, if I can build that portrait of my perspective enough that you can see the way I do, then what you'll see is your life through that theme. And that's what I want. Uh, this isn't this isn't a biography the way you expect it. This isn't a portrait of me so much. Uh, it's not a portrait of my family. And um, it's not war memoir in the way you expect it is as, as well. It puts war in context with all these other things. And uh, if you want chairs, we'll, we'll make them available. We'll have them rush to you with joy. Um, <clears throat> so it's a hard book to read from. It goes through, uh, you know, it goes after, like I said, some, some big game. It's the, the fierce beliefs of our childhood are fierce. And there's something about that which creates its own rationale, its own ration and uh, as a child you believe in immortality. You know, parents aren't going to die. You're not going to die. Um, the things you build are important and will be enduring. They'll last. Uh, there's, a, there's a sense of permanence to things that you have. The objects you surround yourself with. <coughs> and um, over time there's something about that imprinting which follows you. The, uh, the fact that we grow, we find damage, we find death, we find all these things to be uh, the unavoidable spoils of, of a life lived, and that we are terminal beings, but uh, there's something about that child which in, endures in us as well. And even when my parents uh, died, there's something about where I came from I could trace right back to the child, which disbelieved, and it's not because I 'm irrational, but I had a different sense of, of truth at that time, and there's a piece of that belief which stayed with me and there's a lot of that which you 're going to find in your own lives you know, this, this book kind of this book is built to take you home, and uh, that 's what I wanted to do but uh, i'll read a few pieces that you get a sense of, uh, of who I was and all the learning we hope that we do in life uh, you'll find that i 'm Someone who learned not from my mistakes well at all. Uh, if I could make a mistake, I would repeat the mistake with far more enthusiasm and commitment. Um, that's that's kind of my uh, my life. Uh, this book is very much about defiance as well. And there's been a request for me to read the B story, so I'm going to read the B stories. <coughs> I've never read this one, uh, so. You'll have to uh, bear with me if I jump. This begins chapter eight, Blood. I was always told to stay away from bees. The fact that they could hurt me only made them worthy of closer examination. Once, as a boy, I found a bumblebee living in a hole beside a barn, and I watched it come and go. I decided that it was a creature that I could capture, something I could outwit without injury despite its dangers. I was told to stay away from bees, wasps, and fire, but I believed that they all required secret scrutiny of the most cautious kind. The most solitary habit of the bumblebee removed me from the true fear of a swarm, and I waited nearby with a minnow net for it to return. It was flying back and forth to a cluster of wild flocks, its legs thickened by pollen, and it moved like a slow bullet toward me, its wings invisible with effort. I swung the net and knocked it down. It fell onto the driveway, heavy enough to make a sound and an impression in the dust. It was stunned, but I thought it was dead. I did not know that a bee could be stunned. I had a jar cleaned of its strawberry preserves and the tin lid still fragrant with fruit, and I carefully reached for a wing of the downed insect. I picked it up, examining it before placing it in my jar. And it awoke, curled, stung my finger, and escaped as I retreated to the house. My hands were still small then, and my finger quickly reddened with swelling. I had to admit that it hurt, that I was possibly to blame, (laughs) and that I required aid. My mother made a salve of baking soda and a wet towel, and I was told to hold it on my hand and rest. It took some time to feel better. Worse were the words she left me with as I was humbled with surprise, injury, and discovery. Now what did we tell you about staying away from bees? We go forward to uh, just after I'd graduated from Vassar, before I went into the Marine Corps, natural progression (laughs) for artists. Uh, we were, we make great infantry officers. A heavy recruiting effort there at Vassar. And um, actually when I got my my chance to join the Marines um, because I was exposed to a recruiter who was sitting in the college center. Uh, they were putting out their little pamphlets and they were sitting there in their uniforms looking very, you know, restrained and dignified. And in front of them were fifteen college students dressed in white with red Bl- thrown all over them, <laughs> staging a massacre <coughs> and by the time I got to the table, they lay dead in a pile in front of the Marines who took it with a great deal of of good humor <laughs> just nodding at you know why why do we have to come to this godforsaken place over and over again to be vilified um, by people who hope the world is a better place and so I went and picked up a pamphlet and then you know, the rest is, is history. But but in that period of time in between, I didn't want to go home uh, because it would require, once again, that I admitted I needed help. And so I moved into a trailer where I could live for free in exchange for... I was a stonemason, so I was doing all the all the masonry work on this large estate, which was just a wreck. It just had been, a, just been an abandoned basically since the 50s, and these people were pretending they could rebuild it. And, uh, you know, even when I walked into this trailer, which was... Condemned in every way. Uh, even rats were like, "Dude, do not go in there." It's. I mean, rats were getting staph infections in this place. Um, the hose brought water from the barn. I had to cover it with horse manure to keep it from freezing in the winter. I had to, every day I had to unfreeze the toilet bowl um, in the winter, but it was okay because I had a I had a CD player in there with some Skid Row,
0: <laughs>
3: and that warmed things right up. But here I am, in this place, not learning from any of the lessons that I had been already through. In my leaking trailer after college, I cleaned the estate grounds in exchange for rent. I removed stacks of warped lumber, crap plastic planting containers, parts of lawnmowers, and mossy cinder blocks. I stacked the piles of firewood into tight cords and planted a garden. The overgrown yard by the barn was raked and mowed. The last monumental piece of debris was a derelict Ford Bronco. Baby Blue, that the father had insisted on saving despite its worsening condition. It had been parked at the top of a hill beside the barn for years, with a blue tarp draped over part of it. And it was full of wasps that had converted the seats into hives. There was no money to tow it away, and I asked another tenant on the property if he would pull it to the top of the path down to the menu, the meadow, with his pickup. We could then pull the pickup around behind the wreck chain the rear of the Bronco to the truck, and ease it down the road, out of sight, by a gate at the bottom. It could still be towed away someday if the owners ever cared to do so. Everyone agreed to the plan, but someone would have to steer the Bronco. The steering fluid had drained out, and the column was rusty, so small adjustments would take great effort. That was not the problem. The problem was the WASPs. The colony of yellow jackets that had settled in the Bronco was considerable. A crack in the loose driver's side door produced a steady flow of wasps, hundreds, and the truck could not even be approached on that side. When we pulled the tarp off, the entire truck vibrated with the hum of insects inside, and we had to back away quickly as they orbited the hood in search of the disturbance. I agreed to steer the truck. I went into my trailer and put on three layers of sweatshirts, jeans, two layers of sweatpants, two pairs of socks, boots, a scarf, an extreme sports bike helmet that I had found in the Salvation Army store, ski goggles, and winter gloves. It was July and I boiled in the density of inappropriate clothing. It was difficult to bend my arms and legs. There were no brakes anyway and I figured there would be an unlikely requirement for dramatic steering so my immobility was of little concern. I looped the chain to the front, and I opened the door to an explosion of wasps. I sat on the seat, and I could feel the hive crush and stir through my clothes. The the wasps hovered and dove at me, and the compartment filled with them. It was like seeing molecules of gas heated. I almost felt that I had changed scale, become smaller, the wasps larger at this distance than they should be. I recall nothing of the short trip to the top of the hill, except that I went there with every wasp on earth. The pickup pulled me slowly forward and then stopped. I had to assume we were at the top because I could barely see see through the wasps on my goggles. I wiped them off with my glove. A log was wedged against the front tire and a chain removed. The pickup then took its new position behind me. One man fastened the chain to the back and gave a thumbs up, and another kicked away the log, keeping the Bronco from rolling. And they pushed. The Bronco crept forward, reaching the limit of its chain, which promptly lost its hook, slipped off the pickup, and began to rush, gaining speed as I fought the steering wheel to stay on the path. The latch on the driver's side door was broken. And as the Bronco bounced on the ruts, the door swung open, and the seat springs compressed and expanded like a billows, blowing out more wasps. The hive swarmed like static around my face. At the far edge of the pasture was a small cliff, and it was approaching quickly truck speeding as a limp door smashed into the lower gate in the meadow and slammed back into the cloud of wasps throwing glass over me. I was in the meadow now pulling with all my might on the steering wheel to turn away from the cliff that dropped into the river. The door hung at an angle from a hinge and I tumbled from a seat covered by wasps as the truck hit a tree. I began to run, somehow sensing that my clothing was getting thinner as they stung into it, and that they would find a spot I had missed, something coming loose around my helmet and wasps pouring through a hole near my neck. I ran to the sound of three men laughing so hard they were bent over and holding their knees. What you discover in this book is that I am an idiot. I mean, it's it's uncontested. So the lessons I learned, um, I don't learn. I just I just kept on echoing mistakes I've always made because those were intuitive mistakes to make. My, my imprinting caused me to constantly go after the same attractions in life, which is what became these chapters. Stone, became a stonemason. Soil, my mother was a gardener. Metal, I joined the Marines and was pretty much surrounded by metal or shooting metal at things. Um water, we had a river, so all these things trace a certain attraction that I had in my landscape very early and then follows it through my life hopefully through your life in some way as well. Um, of course we have to mention acting because I'm in LA. <laughs> it's what you do. Um, so um, when I was when I was uh my father was a writer, and a wonderful one, and Ray Hartung, one of his former students from a long time ago. And uh, he uh, it would take, a f- every once in a while he would take a Shakespeare, or a, a, a London study group, and the family would go with him for a few months. We lived in London. And I went to school there for four to six months at a time, two times. Um, on my second trip, Um, I was in a school where they did an awful lot of plays. Drama was huge in England, not like it is in America. Drama in England is serious and whereas we kind of dress up as different kinds of fruit and (laughs) bump into each other and you know parents take pictures, that's like drama for elementary school. In England they were staging full on Queen Boudicca against the Romans, full dress you know, these magnificent things. And so I came to it with the wrong preparation. <clears throat> and my parents weren't part of that communal spirit of we all dress our children properly for the era, you know, period, peace work. So uh, I show up and I'm excited because they're going to have a play about war. <laughs> I was like, this is the best. And uh, we were studying Roman Britain, which is great also. And I wanted to be a Roman because they had really great outfits. And um, what we had to do was make our own. And all my parents really had was like, some material and a tomato box, and everything had to be made from this this collection of supplies. And they figured it would be fine, you know, in America, you know, hold up a piece of cardboard, it's a shield, get it, you know, that was that was fine. And in in England, I was immediately ashamed, just horrified. So I showed up with uh, with a pair of shorts and a little thing wrapped over me and a, a terrible sword it was wrapped in a plastic bag and a shield that was a tomato box covered with paper so you couldn't see the tomatoes because i was already horrified by the fact that a, a warrior would have a <laughs> tomato shield It just didn't seem that that impressive so here i am um, about to go into the play itself and this is my real first my first experience with uh... with what i consider to be serious drama and i wanted to rise to the occasion My part consisted of nothing more than following Boudicca's chariot into the room, chanting angry nonsense, waving my embarrassing sword, lining up against the Romans, and then charging to my dramatic death. On the day of the performance for a hundred parents, a staff, and several hundred students, we dressed in our classroom, and the Romans marched into the auditorium. The legion stood shoulder to shoulder at the edge of stage. They looked wonderfully imperial, but I was relieved not to have been chosen for Rome. I could imagine how my armor would have looked if I'd been left to craft it from a tomato box. We assembled in the hall outside while speeches were made inside. At some point we were given a signal and made our entrance. My parents said that as we came in yelling, I was a barbarian most noticeably smiling. (laughs) Boudica gave her speech about liberty and then we were to attack the Roman ranks, failing to achieve our freedom. I rushed up the steps at a boy wearing imposing leather Roman armor and he made an uncomfortable slash at me. This was my cue to perish. In rehearsals, I had gone through the motions, pretending slowly to pretend, but this was the performance. I threw myself backward with a scream, my feet coming off the stage, sword and shield tossed into the air, and I struck the oak floor on my back with a smack that sounded loud even to me. I was told afterward that half of the parents stood up, and the play went silent with a gasp. I lay unmoving, arms extended, eyes closed, laboring to control my breath. A teacher hurried to my side and stooped, trying very hard not to let her voice sound hysterical. Can you hear me, dear? She asked. She had her hand on my chest. It was cold. Yes, I hissed, trying not to move my lips. Are you hurt, sweetie? Can you move? I've been killed, <laughs> I whispered, keeping my eyes closed. The teacher withdrew. I heard my mother's voice in consultation with her and the play went on, more boys falling carefully on the floor at the foot of the stage to the constrained sword strokes of boys dressed too well for fighting. Queen Boudica, seeing all of her men killed, made another speech, drank poison, slumped in her chariot, and was pulled out of the room by the teachers dressed as horses. <laughs> I had pretended at war again and had again been killed in front of my parents. It was my first memorable public performance and a blend of the two professions I would go on to pursue most seriously. And because I don't change. I wanted to get back into acting after uh, my first active duty tour with the Marines. This is after Vassar and after a good period of time down in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina with Fast Eddie Wilson. Um, I was considered uh, by all my commanders to be an intense lieutenant. Apparently I was intense. Um, But uh, it made me serious in all life uh, thereafter in some ways. and So getting into acting afterwards with very few contacts, I had uh, one friend out here and then another Ray Hartang actually here as well. who tried desperately to help me, but uh, my refusal to move to LA hindered that progress. So I pursued it where I could which was nearby in Baltimore. Balmer, sorry. (laughs) After a three-year tour at Camp Lejeune in the infantry, my wife and I moved into a little house in College Park, Maryland, our first home together. I'd wanted to audition for Homicide, Life on the Street because it was a good television show and it was filmed in Balmer, only 30 minutes from our house. It was, in fact, the only local show at the time, and it was probably the only chance I had at a significant role. I'd given my headshots to the casting agent months before, and I was called in to play an extra. They said nothing more than that I would need to wear shorts and bring slippers and a bathrobe. I arrived on set excited to be in the middle of the production, and a production assistant boarded me onto the van to go to hair and makeup. I was informed that I was to play a corpse which was disappointing. (laughs) I sat shirtless as my death was applied to me. I was covered with a pale paste where they thought I would be seen in the partially unzipped body bag and a large hatchet wound was sculpted onto my forehead with wax and opaque shades of blood paints. It was an impressive wound. I dressed in my bathrobe and slippers, got into another van which might have been the same van and was driven a block to the set. In a small warehouse separated from the Baltimore Harbor by a dock where the water ride stopped was a morgue. It had been built for the show, which often brought us detectives there to examine the fictitious dead. There were extras milling around in lab coats and film crews setting up the room for the shoot. I was directed to a stainless steel table and I carefully slid into the body bag. Even though the room was heated, the table was still cold. Another extra sat beside me with a pad as if taking notes on what could only be the most obvious cause of death in history. As I lay there, I did not participate in the bored banter of the other insignificant players and corpses. I wanted to be noted as professional (laughs) and focused. I heard the actors speak their lines for camera tests while I kept my eyes closed. Then stand-in stepped in as lighting was adjusted and the actors rested or continued rehearsing elsewhere. I remained on the table. I did not speak. I waited as the actors were brought back and the filming began. I held my breath and controlled my instinct to shiver until they called cut. If anyone had seen me, they would believe that I was not alive. They began to shuttle people away for lunch, which was set up somewhere down the street, and the actors disappeared along with the crew. I lay on the table. (laughs) I had no intention of moving until directed to do so. (laughs) The set lights clicked off and the warehouse grew quiet. I could hear footsteps in the back and things being moved, but the set was abandoned. I sat up in the body bag. I was alone. I had not followed the herd out of the building to wait for rides and been left behind. It occurred to me that no one was going to direct me anywhere. I slipped out of the bag and off the table, walked backstage, found my bathroom and slippers, and walked outside. It was December in Baltimore. (laughs) Bitter cold, and I didn't know the area very well. A member of the crew was walking back with a plate, and I asked if there was a shuttle coming. He seemed surprised to see me and gave directions to the church where the catering was laid out. I would have to walk. I began to head up the street in my bathrobe and slippers, my bare legs feeling strange as the cold wind struck them. I felt remarkably exposed. I walked across Thames Street where people were Christmas shopping (laughs) and felt myself being noticed. I smiled at couples as they stared, unsure of what they thought they were witnessing. I'd forgotten how my head must have looked. There were many homeless people stumbling around Baltimore, mad with drugs or savage with long disregard. I could have been one of them, insane with imaginary heat and the chill of winter. I arrived at the church where the vans were parked, and went in the front entrance. As I stepped through the large wooden doors, I looked directly into a classroom of black children, (laughs) who promptly went silent. It took me a moment to see that lunch was downstairs in the church basement. I stood, blanched, a gaping wound on my forehead, in a bathrobe. The children stared, as a dead white man descended the stairs and joined the rest of the dam beneath the church. After we ate, the shuttle returned us to the set where I lay back on the table and they finished the scene. Afterward, hair and makeup was busy, so they just gave me some wipes designed for removing makeup and I dressed in my regular clothes. I drove home with the makeup on. I stopped at a 7 near our house and bought a soda. The Pakistani clerk gave me my change and pretended not to notice that I had been killed. (laughs) He was very polite. At home, I looked at myself in the mirror. It was good work. The split skin on my forehead, the drained color of my face. I began to wash it off at the sink, my skin red rubbing, and the wax wound shaved off with a butter knife. I was alive again. Later, I watched the episode eager to see my performance as a dead man. I appeared briefly in the background, out of focus, unrecognizable, my wound unnoticeable, and all the attention paid to details surrounding me were impossible to see. I was as the dead are, blurred, transformed, faded. A year later, I was called into audition for a serial killer and returned to the set in Baltimore. In the series finale, in Winter Again, I was killed the last homicide on the show. And I lay for hours in a pool of red syrup, my hair actually frozen to the sidewalk. I lay there in between takes as a crew piled blankets on me. I wanted to be a professional. I didn't complain, and I didn't move. I held my breath while they rolled film. When the episode aired, my parents said that they couldn't watch. I was always getting killed in front of my parents. over and over again and then I end up at war so all these things progress this chasing fire this tempting death uh, the things we do in our youth sometimes become exactly who we've always been who we are meant to be in some ways we can't turn away from some of these impulses I followed every one of my impulses all the way and if I was in a hole and I was digging and I found the bottom, I would continue to dig. That's the problem with, uh, with those impulses is they don't have an off switch in life. You have death, of course, but I don't believe in that either so much. This is a book about defying all of that. Defiance, really. We have to be defiant because if really we took the time to think about the fact that we're terminal beings, it's depressing. So, we fight that by living. We fight that with our work. Um, we, are, we are pretty impressive with our longing to not disappear. Um, I'll read another piece which I, I read last night actually, but it kind of throws down with my whole idea about impermanence. Like I said, I'm not a fan of impermanence. I don't like the fact that I can create something which is going to eventually dilute into the history of, of things which go away from us. That's what happens. But it's the artist's hope that what we make lives beyond us, lives forever. Even if it's just our idea, even if it isn't even imprinted with our name, that it lives is something that, uh, that we hope for. And I grappled with a lot of these things throughout my life. And, um, and I grapple still. Grappling's what I do. I'm a grappler. Um but it's kind of you know we're always searching for evidence of us, you know we're leaving evidence of us, at least most of us, and we hope that it's worthy of being found one day uh, so I'll read a little piece from Soil, and this stuff will kind of happen throughout the writing like the other writing there are uh, there are discoveries throughout this book The mounds of dirt around the exposed remains of Babylon were composed of blown dust trapped in layers by pieces of pottery. There were pits dug into the undulations here and there, made either by archaeologists doing test digs or by thieves burrowing into the fragments hoping to find something whole. In either case, the wounds cut into the ground were fascinating. One day I walked across the pocked field and found my way into one of the holes. It was 12 feet deep and showed no signs of having reached the floor of the ancient capital. The years had built up without noticeable delineation, all the clay shards and bone packed into the dirt, appearing as one layer, one moment that lasted for a thousand years. I wondered if these mounds were simply everything that had been discarded by archeologists excavating the Ishtar Gate and the walled interior of the citadel. French, Germans, and British fingering through shovelfuls of leavings and hauling all the common matter out to this field and dumping it all over again. All these shattered pots and bones of butchered animals, too ordinary to recompose, left in disorder. Everything discarded. It seemed unlikely as walking on them, the mounds formed geometric shapes. They were rounded squares dipped in their centers as if the thick layer of dirt had been draped over the walls of empty rooms. In one of the pits, I could see the bricks of a wall, cuneiform marked on them, the asphalt mortars still holding them in place. It was difficult to imagine the people pouring their trash into the empty sections of city for centuries after its decline, eventually filling buildings and covering their walls with the waste of later occupation. I found no skulls underground in the silt of the city, just jawbones and teeth of vanished flocks consumed. How was it possible that such immense places could be lost enough to require rediscovery? When Rome was finally unearthed, beginning in 1803, many of its stone streets were under 60 feet of debris. How was it that no one noticed the dirt deepening, covering everything? Pompeii was entombed in a pyroclastic surge in AD 79 and lost until 1594 when a man found it digging an underground water channel. Sands massed over the tombs of Egyptian pharaohs. No one left to worry about their afterlives. Everyone buried slowly after them. The Acropolis left barren on its rock. The jungles grown over the temples of Machu Picchu and Prohm, Angkor. No one staying to guard the gates or leave fruit at the statues. All the gods and men worshipped, armies raised and bled away, taking empires and losing them, tombs filled with stolen treasures and looted, the seats of civilizations built and surrendered, all of us defending our homes and leaving them behind to be destroyed, the earth boiling up, dunes deepening, and water rising over our eternities. I stood in the pit looking at its walls. In some ways, it seemed appropriate that Iraq was now left with fragments that could not be reassembled teeth and jaws, its histories broken down to unfamiliar objects, symbolic of consumption instead of memory. You invade so many places in your life, you are a constant intruder, and you keep all the places you enter, and you let them all go. And then just because, I've seen cities destroyed in my life, people buried, graves dug up, I have lived outside in the elements. I know that everything is recomposed from pre-existing matter, that we are all fragments from Earth and life blown apart and gathered up. The pieces of us are from stars and meteors, the ocean, dirt, and the dead. We will not be able to keep these pieces either. Our body is doomed to be given back to the ground. I have been presented all the evidence of every particle's part and universal transience, and I have decided to believe none of it. Dust to dust. So. Thank you. Thank you all. Uh, questions, comments, witty remarks, fables, middle names no one knows. Interesting foreign words we use in English. Words I'll never write in a book. Cobacetic. Never going to do it. Never. Never in this life or the next. Yes? I'm only halfway through, so I'm sorry if I'm asking the question. But one of the things I was struck by was sort of the threat of, of learning as a
0: narrative threat. Um, and so you write about how your father explored the world of words, and that you, mm. I think, you explored the world through
3: pushing against it. Yeah. Um, how did that learning evolve? Well, uh, it didn't really. I was a tactile learner. Um, I went after the physical universe, my father went after the intellectual one and it took me a while to find the necessity of that one to explore what I was seeing. Because after a while you can't comprehend dirt anymore. It becomes this strange substance, this material composed of of everything and uh, you need to think it through. And you need to find language to articulate those thoughts. I always thought I could solve all my problems visually. I'm a visual artist. I make films. You know, could I say all this with film? Yeah, kind of. But, but, uh, but to believe it, to to give it the depth and weight that I wanted it to have, you need to know that I truly have been in it. You know, to talk about dirt, I have to talk. I have to tell you about holes, in a way which isn't showing you a hole. It's putting you in there from how I've perceived it. Uh, all the way under, uh, going to ground with me for a while. And so um, I never thought I would write a book. Um, the language came to me when I was in uh, in Iraq, and I could only write kind of one letter a month in between things and, uh, and launch it off to friends. And so um, that was when I had to articulate my experience. And I thought that I could always just show you, you know, take a picture, this is what it's like. No, not really. You can't, I can't show you the thinking behind all of this. Um, the image itself won't solve all those things in an articulate way. Art is meant to get you into conversation with your own you know, your own thoughts. Um, but for this, I needed to be specific. I needed to find the cleanest way possible to, to, to say it. And so language became the thing. And I found my voice in those letters, really. Um, writing home once a month, Ramadi even more so. My second tour, where it was just a shit sandwich. I mean, Ramadi was hell on earth in 2005, and we were all taking a bite. Um, we had a lot of casualties. I was wounded then. Um, lost my best friend in front of me. And after a while, you begin to think, okay, so that's that's this life then. This is how it ends. And um, you know, there, there's a certain relationship you have to your mortality which requires death to change. The idea of death, not so much. The, um, you know, the films of death, not so much. You need to actually be in death, about as close as you can get. And that was what I got. And I came home on my daughter's first birthday, as said, and uh, she didn't know who I was. And that was hard, but these things happen to many people. And then I lost my parents in rapid succession within a year, and I, I changed position entirely with them, out of death. It was that thing which took the child and said, uh, "All those things you believe are wrong." And the child was throughout that entire process, and to this day, saying, "No, I'm not." You know, that's what the kid says. You know, you're bad. No, I'm not. You just, you just did that. No, I didn't. That wasn't me. That was my instincts, you know. And uh, go ahead and try to try, try to discipline my instincts. Good luck with that. So, all that was coming to to this kind of this this need to pass on what I finally came to grips with, and we're all going to deal with it. You know, that's that's the hard part. Is that. You know, this this book is a sucker punch at the end. You know, it's kind of all these things building up over the book um, and the messages kind of finding their way to you because that's what this book is for. It's uh, it's the human condition book. It, it's a book for the astronaut in space. You know, welcome. This is how things are going to go. It's a big cycle, you know, small bullet big sky type theory um, about about life. And as as much as it acknowledges the fact that there is death in the world, it defies it. You know, so um, so that's kind of how I I came to write this that way. Um, and I don't even remember the question. <laughs> what was the question? Did I answer anything at all, or did I just answer everything that was around it? That's what I do. <laughs> yeah
2: control
3: the circumstances of your demise, how
2: would
3: you want to die? Spectacularly. <laughs> yeah. I've already written my obituary and it's great.
0: <laughs>
3: you know, it gets better all the time. I keep on adding little bits. You know, I was I got up to like forty three with this. And I was hoping that, you know, things would work out and it just end the book with that. And it would sell because like hey this guy, you know, died on the last day of his book, you know. But um I still have time, you know. I'm on a book tour. Anything could happen. I'm going to Texas. You know. Selling books, nice. So, uh, yeah, it's the journey. But uh, I didn't think I was going to survive anyway. I thought I thought I was already done. Uh, my second tour, for sure. And I wore it. I wore it in my first tour because I was expected to be invulnerable. You know, I had a 150 Marines who required that I not be vulnerable, and so for them I was, not it was my best acting work ever. I was like, oh, well, I'm immortal, so follow me, and I did. And for my <laughs> for my sins, I, I bet right. Um, I just didn't get killed. Uh, my second tour, I was wounded within the first two weeks, and it was just you know 140 wounded, 27 killed in our unit in that seven months alone. So I was so convinced I was dead already. That I also wasn't worried about it. Why worry, you know, walking dead? So um, so I was never really worried that way or about my own death, worried about my Marines, but I didn't worry about myself that, mo- that way. Um, which was, you know, kind of a strange relationship to all that, but I figured 2005 was it you know every letter or picture I sent out into the world I thought was kinda you know someday they're gonna find my camera's gonna be sent home and they're gonna get the last image whatever the hell it was. I took about one or two images a day um, mostly because I wasn't sure what it was going to lead to you know the last things I was seeing this is my last as a visual artist you know you're trying to you're trying to give that all away this is the last thing that I thought was important here I can't give you context because I'm not here anymore but it yourself you can see the progression of images you know there's a chronology for you but um yeah i thought i'd be dead at 12 actually as you read the book you are be like how didn't you die at 12. i
2: have a question that kind of actually jumped off of that yeah um so i was going to ask because i know that in other interviews you've talked a little bit about the, the sort of strangeness in trying to portray a soldier while you're acting after having served yeah America. I was going to ask whether there, the this the sort goes of two ways, where your experience as an actor had any sort of impact on you while you were a soldier. And you sort
3: of mm. mentioned that yeah, I, the, the you you have to you have to carry yourself in a certain way, and you have to, I guess, you know, act in a particular way. Even though I never really repressed who I was, I didn't compromise who I was. I still told the same jokes, but I just did it with an authoritative voice. Um, you know, this, uh, you have to be a certain way and I think mostly it was, it was not for my marines it was for Iraqis is that I had to despite endless and incredible frustration I had to not appear frustrated at all when people were lying directly to my face I couldn't call them liars I just had to go interesting and ask the same questions in, in circles to try to find what, what was true out of the lies that were being told because everyone part of part of the you know the Middle East is You don't tell the whole truth, in 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 reply. It's just, at least there it was. So uh, because you know, for years, you know the truth would get you killed, uh, especially in Iraq, in in Saddam's time. So it made it even more pronounced. How could they trust us? Why would they tell us what they think, if somehow that might be used against them? Um, So uh, I was endlessly frustrated, and I think I. I worked very hard to constantly, you know, carry it like it it wasn't affecting me, and uh, and that was interesting. But then of course I brought I, I came back, and the first role I had was Caliccio, who was undisguised in his fury and frustration. <laughs> so it was like I had this little box I was putting all into. I was acting for Iraq, and then I came home and were like, hey, open that box. It's like, awesome, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, these things inform each other and and assist, you know, your life experience, everything that rubs off on your on you in your life, you carry with you. It's your it's part of your your kit and your baggage. Uh, both both weighty, but but you use all that stuff, you know, and in story in the story, you know, once again you begin to see how everything's echoed by by looking back at yourself. You can see something that happened just now that you did on purpose. And you can find that Traced, you know, there's always that pathway. And I tried to find those pathways by using elements. And one of them was not acting because it isn't an element. But there's an element to that in all of this, uh, was some of that. Plus, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of me. I like being somebody else. It's an interesting way of exploring humanity, is just going and hiding in someone for a while. And then, uh, then your wife hopes you come out of it. She did not like Caliccio. <laughs> Or his hair. <laughs> That's an interesting question.
0: Yeah. Um, could you just say a few more words about uh, some of this? You indirectly answered, but uh, your decision to become uh, a marine, uh, because in the book, you know, obviously your early experiences would kind of set.
3: Yeah, it sets it all uh, up.
0: But then you, you know, you went off to Vassar and studied studio art and. You know that seems to be the logical point where you know you you go in a different direction and then boom you don't really go into it and then you join the marines and i I was just wondering uh i mean two things you know one if there's any um, relationship between extreme landscape and extreme experience absolutely there seems to be something there you know and then I, i was also wondering about if you wanted maybe you don't want to talk about just kind of the political aspect I mean the political implications of joining the Marines and going yeah. to Iraq and I mean you know you don't want to talk about that that's fine but I'm, I'm actually more interested in that just that sense of yeah. extremity and that sense of being in a, you know very extreme landscapes mm-hmm. and then needing to be in situations that really test you in very extreme ways and
3: Yeah. um, Well, you know, forging my way into my landscape as a kid and wanting to be a knight, uh, these were all things that were very present and uh, seemed like logical course. Of course, I went to England. They said I couldn't be a knight, which crushed me um, because I wasn't British. And I tried to get my dad to hook me up. And, you know, I I knew the progression of of knighthood. And I'm there in, you know, I'm there in the Tower of London, surrounded by armor. That was just I was like, great, you know, I'm here for my job, you know, this this is what I do. And, you know, of course at that period, it's it's mostly romantic, you don't, you don't save the relics of death, you save the relics of victory, you know, and you surround yourself, you go to these places and you see armor, which is, it's beautiful sculpture. I mean, a, a suit of armor in 1300 was kick ass. You know, it was a gorgeous sculpture of a almost person and there's something seductive about that and also about the mission. The fact that you could be noble, that you would go forth on an effort which would be just, is of course what you hope for. The problem is that the soldiers always betrayed. So you don't pick your war, you're sent to it. And you know, you don't do a whole lot of examination of that because you're not going to not go. My Marines are being sent to Iraq and that's the politics of it. That's where they're going, roger that, that's where I'm going. And there wasn't a there was no politics for me really in the end because when I was there, there I was. You make the politics of your moment and you try to do your best to remain just even in an unjust war, you know, which Iraq has essentially been fairly fairly well documented as, you know, we went there to, for weapons of mass destruction and a tie to you know, terrorism and we didn't find any weapons of mass destruction and the last letters from the deposed leader were telling him not to cooperate with terrorists and terrorism came to Iraq because that's where we were. Uh, we delivered ourselves into the arms of that. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that uh, Marines need to be well re- led and you can lead them in many ways. You can lead them badly. You know, I could destroy cities, no problem. I was trained for that and we're very good at it. But that wasn't the mission very quickly. Within a few days, the conventional army was beaten and um, we were dealing with village. Children, civil infrastructure, governance, the biggest stuff that you have to deal with in the world in terms of taking care of people fell upon us. And luckily, I was a vassar student. So I just found it all fascinating. I'm like, okay, well, then I won't talk, I'll listen. And I'll know that the one person who knows the least here is me. So I'm not going to go in there and Define a template of what I believe democracy is, what you do of course discover is that the more dis- more you think about what is democracy what is equitable what is fair uh, and trying to define that in yourself for another people and encourage that in them by way of their own native instincts and native customs etc it's their job to it's their job to fight for their their own identity. We couldn't define one for them which is something that I think politically tried to do which was just stupid Um, and and was doomed to fail uh, as it is all over the Middle East. Uh, There's ideas that are at work and it'll take many years of consideration for them to take if they want to but it's their decision. But um, what it did do is it brought me back to America where I discovered that all the things that I wanted to purify Our best intentions, our best hopes for who we think we are aren't real here and that sucked. You know, we aren't the things we say we are, people here. Some of us, yes, maybe. But in terms of an overall organization that is America and American governance and corporations and everything else, this place isn't equitable, isn't fair, it isn't democratic, it's not. But I tried to make that there with my discussion with Iraqis. This is something we all hope for. In fact, I hope for my own country someday. So the politics of that were I was, def- I was trying to define politics, but I wasn't defining while I was there because that wasn't a choice. I chose to join the Marines. And in doing that, I would be sent where the Marines were sent. The electorate told me where to go, so vote carefully. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, I was going you like to focus on the end of things, the end of life. Um, and I'm curious, since you went to Iraq, if you've um, written on the end of the Iraq war, because I haven't seen much reflection mm-hmm. of the end of the Iraq,
1: Iraq war. And I think it would be really valuable to just be able to hear...
3: I wrote a piece for the Daily Beast which went into um, Newsweek uh, which talked about the last kind of troops out of Iraq and what does that mean. Uh, And then I wrote another piece about the Afghan killings which I pretty much didn't write about the Afghan killings. I wrote more about uh, what it means for us having committed this act as a, a national responsibility and how does that reflect. Uh, so you can find those two online or free. The, the Daily Beast, Benjamin Bush, same guy. Um, in terms of the end of the Iraq war, I don't know how it's going. <laughs> I had a plan when I was in 2003 which was irrelevant because I wasn't in charge. Um, but it was for a division of peoples. You know, to undo the lines that had been drawn in 1920 by the, uh, you know, the French and the, and the British when they created Iraq. Uh, and separated all these people because they never cared about ethnic or political division lines. They just they were good carvers. They were imperialists. Um, and they created Iraq with these borders that stuck pieces of Kurdistan in there and stuck the, uh, the Shia and the Sunni kind of into one zone together, um, awarding the Sunnis eventually control with only 20% of the population of the entire country, uh, repressing the rest. So um, you know, that was my plan was, okay, go ahead and sever the Sunnis off. We know they're going to be pissed forever because they only got 20% of the vote and if we're really going to create democracy, can you imagine what the Democrats and Republicans would do if they had 20% of Congress? They whine like children if they have 50% of Congress like, oh, we need one guy but there's no way we're possibly going to get it with something reasonable. We're going to have to, you know, give up a state somewhere and some kind of thing. So I knew what the Sunnis were about. I'm like, oh, so you were in charge of everything. Now you'll never be in charge of anything and your section of the area has no oil this is going to suck. So I'm guessing what you're going to do is go on a sectarian violence binge not so much because you're pissed at the Shia but because you're killing voters. Which is why one guy goes and blows up 45. Those are good odds. If you can do that over and over again your 20 percent's is looking bigger. Um, the Shia were just awarded a, a whole country. Here you go. Sorry you were oppressed. You get to have a country. Go ahead and botch it. Um, they didn 't define it, you know, um, and the, the Kurds have been pretty happy the whole time. They actually like us. We liberated the Kurds in their minds. they love us, they have oil, and it 's kind of nice up there so uh, you know if they can get their oil through the Shia section because they can 't get it through Turkey, those guys want to kill them um, then they can work a little deal down um, um kasar get their oil out and and be happy ever after you know all the corruption that comes around with that's going to be. Epic, but you know, all's well that ends well. I just thought that the Shia would be kind of their own country, the Kurds would be their own country, which would annoy the Iranians, the Turks, and the, Sh- and the Syrians. All of which doesn't matter to me, but it's really going to piss off the Turks, and uh, and the Shia, uh, the Syria, uh, the Sunni would eventually just kind of annex themselves, if not directly, certainly politically, to the Baath Party in Syria, which of course is now a collapsed, collapsing state. Um, because they're Sunni and they're, sh- they're uh, they have a bath party running the shop, so uh, yeah. and they're next to each other. So that's how I thought things would shake out in 2003 when we could have made that all happen just by saying, "And now we announce a new country, times three. But instead, we brought over Bremer, who was a functional idiot, and began to just screw stuff up in, in biblical proportions. Um, Bremer was a was a horrible, terrible thing. We had this whole army. He disbanded them. It's like, "Go forth, disguise yourself, and fight us." Like, great, and he took the top five layers of all government and made them never able to work in Iraq again. Now, they were all corrupt. I'm not contending that, but uh they also knew how to make corruption functional, <laughs> so it took us ten years to find corrupt officials to replace them to do things half as well as they did uh when they left. Um, because no one would really have did to do anything. Mm-hmm. The, the, all the critical infrastructure fell apart. I don't know what the question was. What was the question? <laughs> wars don't end. The wars don't end. We're still there. Plenty of contractors. Can we ex- leave in December? Sure. It's over. Absolutely. It
0: really
3: is. I'm sure. I yeah.
2: saw a photo
0: on the New York
3: Times. Yeah. Yeah. That explains my friends who are contractors in the green zone right now. They're not there though. Sure. I mean we no longer have a large force in Iraq. No we don't. That's true. But we are paying out the ass for Iraq. We have like 50,000 contractors there you know that we're paying to be there to do various things. We have even more in Afghanistan. And basically in Afghanistan we own two cities. Kabul and Kandahar after we leave, if Karzai isn't on the last plane with his luggage going, I just want a, just a weekend off, uh, he's got about five days before the Taliban takes the country back. So, you know, welcome to that plan. We've only invested a trillion. Good thing it's not going to your schools, though. Because that would be stupid.
0: <laughs>
3: yeah, we got issues. But uh, wars don't end, really. Our relationship there is is sealed for a long period of time. Plus we want that oil. Yummy. Any more questions that aren't political, please? (laughs) I am on a 197 city tour, but I am not running for anything. (laughs) I just want you to buy the book. None of that is in this book, by the way. I mentioned politics for exactly mm, four sentences. And they say it all in four sentences. Unlike when I talk. (laughs)
2: <laughs> which is why it's
3: sometimes better to write <laughs> because you can be more articulate and take more time to do so. Um, Shall we? Anyone can leave at any time. I would not be offended. But if you want to stay and have more questions, I will answer all of them except the ones from Scott Tanner Jones. <laughs> yes? How long did you take you to write this? You started writing in, Iraq. in Well, no, I didn't. Yeah, well I had journals just to keep track of things, but uh, of the 1,800 pages of journals I have from Iraq, I used about four pages just for reference. Um, The letters I used, two excerpts, um, about a page and a half of of letter out of all that stuff. So nothing really survived from any of those sources. Uh, It was all fresh stuff. Um, I I recomposed the uh, essay for Harper's much of that's in here, as well as the uh, the one from Michigan Quarterly Review. So they have got blown apart and recomposed uh, into many of these sections. Some of them were, were cut. And then the rest of it was just me storyboarding a book. Uh, I knew I wanted to do something very unique, um, which is why we can't find a, a reviewer to compare this to something specific, because there's just nothing else that has this model. And um, I just up the chapters and I wrote sections and I tacked them into these various chapters and I moved them around and things that didn't have enough strength or redundant in some way I just started cutting them away like you do with scenes. This, this, I need to say this in this order is kind of how I built the book and you know if something wasn't strong enough it lost its place and um, sometimes things shifted. I had originally uh, 12 chapters, now there's nine. Uh, there was underground, which became soil, b- moved into soil. There was a dust in an underground chapter. They became soil, and much of both of them were, were taken away. Ice yeah, it's an exciting book. Um, ice and water were combined, and some of ice went into stone. and uh, there was another one which was uh, was was sky, but I killed it. it didn't <laughs> I killed the sky. That's me, man. That's what I can do. (laughs) I killed this guy. Um, So it shook down and eventually was was out. I had a great editor, Matt the Best in the Business. Um, And I came to it originally with the entire thing built to be just the way we remember, which is all uh, oh, completely unchronological. The way we think is associative. It doesn't, it doesn't care about time. And it was leaving all over the place and so he, he was the one that, that saved the book by saying, you know, I see what you're doing and it's fascinating but <laughs> you're going to kill your readers. Um, try to put each chapter chronological from childhood to adulthood and then start again the way you're doing it. Um, so he was the one that re really kind of set uh, the structure that way, in each chapter, was make them chronological instead of instead of leaping the way I was kind of really thinking them through. Um, so, always have an editor who's smarter than you. It's part of the plan. Yeah, I was lucky. Juan, what? It's okay. I would have forgotten the question after I started answering it. <laughs> That's how I roll. Why don't we break it down, and then
2: we can set up. You can any sure, questions?
3: yeah, let's sign it. <laughs> Thank you all for coming.